the background is we were having discussions after all of the episodes and realized that we were making some really good points. Uh, <laughs> Connecting the, some dots that were just you and I were hearing. <laughs> yeah, so like, hey, let's uh, record some of these. So uh, at least a semi-regular feature, if not a regular feature, will be some of these analyses, depending on how good I guess they turn out to be. Welcome to a bonus analysis and discussion episode with the hosts of the Path Distilled podcast. In these episodes, we talk about the guests that we just had on, how it connects to the guests we've had in the past, and give our take on what you've heard. I love so much of what she was talking about. I think when she, the first thing I'll mention is when she, um, mentioned she was talking about pressure right and the pressure that she felt being at Penn and how it sounded right like it was different than the pressure that she felt or experienced when she switched and went now into law school and was at a different school I think it's such an important thing for the listeners to take away that notion that pressure is a perception right like we think it's this real thing and I, I don't mean to say that in the way that like pressure isn't real but what I mean by that is that it's our lens on it that makes the difference and the environment that we're in that makes the difference, right? We, different contexts make us feel and experience different things. And then we also have this lens that we bring to the table that makes us look at things in different ways. Are we looking at it as a pressure cooker, you know, or are we looking at it as something that's exciting where we're gonna, it's gonna challenge us like she was talking about with, you know, starting her own business and becoming a coach. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. And I think the the idea that uh, the lens and in some cases, this, you know, things like, uh, you know, that imposter syndrome or things like that can, it can be difficult for people to overcome. And so, like you said, it could be seen as this is really competitive, which that could be the predominant view that you have, or it could be, this is invigorating. You could actually have this look at the same stance. Um, And so I I still remember there was that guy, I've forgotten his name that was interviewing for the position at the lab at Florida state. Um, And he was a high performer. And about Jason. No, it was uh, a guy from Carnegie Mellon. It was a, oh, that a one, di- yeah. mm-hmm. different position. And we were talking about how uh, just bright, I mean, you could just, he was oozing bright. I remember. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, just, uh, so the reason I say that is if you can imagine an environment with, you know, 20 of those folks, um, you know, men and women that are just oozing, because uh, almost everyone that's been in an environment like that, I have to say that I haven't been to in a program such as that, I've been around very, very bright people, but not, you know, comprised entirely of people at that level. And so you can just imagine having, being surrounded by that if you felt like you didn't belong, how that pressure could be mounting. Yeah, I mean, it's such a fascinating area of social psychology, right? And related areas of psychology, that idea of, you know, in-group and out-group and belonging and when we see ourselves belong versus don't. And of course that, brings to bear how we see ourselves, our own self-concept and what we think of ourselves, right? Our self-esteem, our self-confidence, all these things that are kind of wrapped up into how we experience different people and groups and situations and contexts and all that that we're in. And then this 
that's part of what we take into consideration when we kind of bring to bear this lens on the situation we're in and the pressure that we feel and whether we look at it as threatening or whether we look at it as a challenge, right? And then I think the other piece that you were talking about with kind of like the different language that we can use with that. Also, one of my favorite, all-time favorite theories, and it's kind of an old one at this point, but is hugely impactful, I think, um, is uh, Kelly's personal construct theory from the 1950s and is where basically it's the idea that we all have personal meanings, right? So, you know, if I um, say right now, um, uh, house. When I say that word, you, me, and our listeners have our own conceptualization that pops up into our mind of what that means, that what that looks like, what it is, what image came to mind, what feelings we have that are associated with that, what other memories are attached to that. Um, and so the same is true when we get into these different environments and we're put into different situations, right? And we have that about ourselves too, the, the way that we see ourselves, the language that we use for ourselves, the language that we use for stress. We know that Kelly McGonigal has done some great work on that, on, um, you know, that it's shifting the focus to thinking about stress as good or bad, but rather uh, it's our beliefs about stress and our, the language that we use about stress that are really important to take a look at. And that reminds, there's, um, I've forgotten the authors, but there's a medical a study on medical students and they looked at the ones who were successful. They gave them an intentionally very difficult situation. Mm-hmm. And at the end, they determined who successfully navigated the simulation. And basically it was upwards of 95% of the group that was successful. They asked them to describe what they walked into and the ones that had described it as a challenging scenario we're almost all successful. So that was their description. The ones who described the situation they were walking into as impossible. Mm -hmm. I think there was only one out of 30 or something that actually was successful. And so kind of uh, alludes to what you're mentioning that that framework. It's also a great example of the power of language in and of itself though, right? Because impossible has a different definition than challenge does. And the nuance of that is so important. And I know the, uh, you mentioned, uh, I forgot the word you used, but um, that the feeling of like, if one feels like they're outside of their element. Belonging? Yeah, well, but it can be overwhelming. (laughs) Was that the word? (laughs) No, that wasn't the particular word, but it's, uh, it was, uh, but if you, if you're in that environment and you feel like you don't belong, just the stress of uh, not belonging or the, the thoughts that go through your head can actually make it impossible to think about anything else. Sure. Uh, you know, there's the term stereotype threat, or I think they've changed mm-hmm. to group threat. Um, the idea that any identity, but even in the cases where you just feel out of place, I think has the same premise and it occupies those executive functions that would be using, you would be using them to problem solve. But since you're now thinking, I don't belong here, that's overtaking the brain power that you would have been using to be success- successful. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think what happens, right, is either your your mind is wrapped up in basically irrelevant stuff. It seems obviously relevant at the time, but irrelevant to the task. Or what ha- can happen, to, I think, also, uh, also or alternatively, is 
your thinking centers of the brain, right? Like you, you stop thinking you really come from emotion an emotion driven place, right? And the emotion of what you're experiencing in that moment is really what's driving you, not the thoughts. Yeah. And that reptilian brain, as we know, as they call it, is not very logical. It's safety first <laughs> keep keep yourself safe keep yourself out of harm's way i talk about that a lot with clients right like that is that is human 100 percent basic human nature that we are always trying to protect ourselves you know keep ourselves safe sometimes overprotect. but i think also it makes me think of what you were saying before makes me think of some of the interesting research and discussions on when you are one person representing a group or there's a small number and with women actually i've read some interesting i haven't delved into this completely yet but there is some interesting research that i've read where there's some difference between being the only woman in the room like she was talking about only woman with all male in the room or what can actually be different experience different sometimes where you are um you know, there's a couple of you in the room and the shift that happens sometimes for good, sometimes not for good um, for one or, or both people um, when it's just that small nuance of change. Sure. And um, that famous, um, I don't, blanked on that author too or that researcher but there was the uh, oh the ash line judgment study it's ash oh god I, that's one of my favorite like, studies yeah. the ash conformity study I, yeah. I love talking about that so people are judging the lengths for the, those that may not know they're judging the lengths and they the idea is to tell which one you believe is the same uh, the one on the right is the same as one of the three on the left and you choose right. a b or c or some version of that and then what they wanted to do was to see what people would do if the other people in the group were giving obviously wrong answers. So it might be a two foot line and they're answering the one that was half of a foot or a foot, mm -hmm. obviously wrong answers. They wanted to see if everyone else was in on it. If you're say in a room of 15 people and um, all 15 gave the wrong answer, would you also give the wrong answer? And it didn't always happen, but at least uh, in the famous study, 90 upwards of 90% answered with the group at least once but what the relevance uh, to what you were just pointing out is if just one person so if it's two of you against 14 i think that's the right numbers uh, based <laughs> on what i said if it's two of you against the other 14 the number goes down to like 10 percent. it's uh, it's much more likely just having that one ally so yeah and then you layer in the gender effects in a situation you know like this and it gets even more interesting right what For can sure. sometimes happen um and i thought it was interesting in like the, the tribal you know there's a lot, been a lot written on like the tribal aspect of humans and kind of pack mentality it's very interesting when you start looking into some of the gender stuff sure and i think the um of course um and i think if you so you first generation college students you would expect to fill out a place but when you and maybe i don't know we didn't ask you might have been first generation but to get into schools like Penn, one has to be a high performer to begin with. And so it's mm -hmm. interesting to hear that, you know, there's that much uh, potential self-doubt. Um, and I guess now that we put it out there, there might be people to contact us and say, hey, I was the person that thought <laughs> I was this stuff. I was amazing. I <laughs> knew I was in the right place, which again, but it's, it's always interesting to 
look at why they feel that way. Like, where does that sense of belonging come from? Because, it, you know, it's different for different people. We all connect. That's what kind of the group dynamics literature shows is we all find that belonging in different ways for different reasons, which is why sometimes, you know, team culture can be challenging and why it's so important, right? To have that shared kind of belonging, um, that shared commonality is so important. And I've gotten really much better. I don't know how I used to be. I haven't, I guess, thought about it. But people, I've had people ask me, so if I have a colleague that's publishing, publishing three times the rate that I am, does that bother me? And mm -hmm. it doesn't. You know, I focus on what I do. And, you know, so the, the point being focus on what you can produce or what you can do and worry less about what somebody else is doing. And if you're satisfied with what you're producing, you've mentioned it before, how do you define success? Mm -hmm. And I think that will put you in a better spot. I also don't look down on the people that are publishing a third less or not at all than I, you know, if it's identifying um, what it is that makes one happy. And as I tell my students, if you ever find, they've asked me about which job should they pursue or should they, mm -hmm. if they take this job, would it look like they're stepping um, or if it's a step down from what they could be doing. And I tell them if you're happy, like if they might already have a job that they love and they're wondering if they should take something more psychology related. And I, my answer has always been, if you love what you're doing, it's difficult to find bliss. So if yeah. you have that, just, you know, don't wreck that. I think there's two interesting things that I'm thinking about. One is I do think that was a really interesting to hear in Elisa's story, how she, you know, potentially how she defined success at different points of her life and career, which is really important to get a sense of, right? Like what, what does success mean? And not just, you know, like the win, things in the win column, but this idea you're getting out of like the goals, like what do you want out of this? And how close are you to that? Or what are you doing to move in that direction? Or what obstacles are in your way? Which relates, I think, to the second point, which is I've heard some pushback lately on the idea of, pursuing what you're passionate for because I think it it what has happened is what normally happens in human nature which is we're here and then people say something like you know you should pursue what you're passionate about and we swing all over here so now we're just pursuing passion <laughs> not recognizing that the, the message might have been miscommunicated a little bit you know and I for think sure. that goals are a little bit more nuanced than just I'm going to go and do something and be happy, which means that that job that I need to get there, you know, I'm not, well, I don't want to do that because I'm not happy right now. Okay. You know, and you could hear that in, in her story and what her sister shared with her about business, you know, not basically trying to guard against instant gratification. Like this is something you're building over time. And so, you know, can we look at this idea of I don't, I don't actually call it happy. I think about like more like fulfillment. Can we look at, you know, this road we're on or um, this place we're trying to get to or this definition that we have for what will give us fulfillment and check whatever boxes that we have? Is that, can we clarify that a little bit more for ourselves and understand that some things that we're going to do don't fit that, but in the bigger picture, they work towards that. Like, I love what I do. I don't love every piece of what I do, but I love what I do, right? Sure. 
so that may be what is important. And just like Elise, I'm similar. Like I've got eyes down the road for like, I'm trying to have a long career here, not just have the business I want right now and have to have it right now. Well, yeah, let me, uh, I agree with everything you said, but let me clarify on that particular statement about for the, that particular student that had their bliss. I've seen people go on nomadic journeys chasing fulfillment or happiness, whichever term we decide to use. And my point to that particular student was they were tremendously happy with what they currently had. Absolutely. And no so, need to compare to somebody yeah. else to, to, to create your definition. Absolutely. Yeah. And so if that, my fear for that person was if they left and pursued this higher society standards, a higher level goal, or even a different profession, if they lost that, that would be horrible because you can spend your entire lifetime looking for the satisfaction that they at least claim that they had. And so I felt like- And it wouldn't it. have been that students, right? That wasn't their definition. They were, they were defining something based on looking at somebody else and looking at that, what they are doing. And exactly. that's what I love Elisa's kind of parting point, right? Her big takeaway is really related to that. It's not about like just blindly being you. The message was don't, don't worry about what everybody else is doing, right? Like step into what you want to do and who you are. And that's, admittedly, that's, uh, I agree 100% with the advice, but I think if, at least for me, it's, I'm not 100% there, but it's taken a lot of work and uh, it's hard it's for everybody because that's a bit how we're we're built, right? But also I think it's, I think I've mentioned in one of these before that, um, I read not too long ago um, that one of the uh, original researchers of perfectionism who looked at, um, you know, basically whether we are perfectionists, whether we hold other people to perfectionistic standards, or whether we think people in society are holding us to perfectionistic standards or high standards, um, the our own perfectionism apparently, I think, I think the dates, if I remember correctly, were like. 90s maybe or you know somewhere around there to 2016 and over that time they've looked at the generational shifts and self-perfectionism has only uh, increased 10 percent but socially prescribed perfectionism right like our sense that society or others have high standards for us that we have to meet these high bars that has grown over that time 30 percent like that's a big shift 30 percent's a lot um you know i know it sounds like a lot of years but that's a huge movement in our sense as a society that we are being held or have to meet very high standards sure and I, you can call me captain obvious but it's in part because of all the cultivated portrayals that we see on social media I think there's a number of factors, social media, right? Which makes it seem like everybody's life is awesome, even though, you know, they've taken 70 pictures before the one they post and are not posting the not, oh, some people actually are starting to post some not great things, right? To share that of themselves, but. Um, I was a trailblazer on that front. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think social media, I think, you know, we do see increasing numbers of people getting college degrees and then therefore have to get even higher degrees. We see some fields like you know physical 
I think it's physical therapy, athletic training, like there's some fields that are now requiring even higher degrees, you know, to get into those fields. So it, it makes a lot of sense. There's maybe more perceived competition. We know that there is a shift in the types of, you know, jobs that are available. We know there's a lot more people pursuing, you know, sport at younger ages and pushing into wanting to get college scholarships and then GoPro, all those things, right? So I think there's a, a, a number of reasons why that makes sense in addition to some psychological ones or social psychological ones like what's called the fallout of the self-esteem movement and this period of time where we've, because of the self-esteem research, thought that we should really be making people feel good about themselves, which it's not that we shouldn't, but there was like a little cautionary maybe tale in there of like how we do that matters that we didn't really take into consideration and now we're you know having to to deal with sure so yeah i was unable to make talking about setting higher goals and keeping ratcheting that up i can remember not making time to appreciate any of the uh, benchmarks or the uh, milestones that i had i as soon as I had the master's degree, I thought, okay, now I need to work on my PhD. And then even when I got the PhD, I, f I remember having the thought, okay, now I have to make sure I get to the job or find the job or uh, that type of thing. So I think the importance of, I guess, going back to her episode, slowing down mm -hmm. and even cultivating appreciation for what you've accomplished. She mentioned the list that she had for her client. I think that's important for people to realize because eventually you're walking around in the wilderness realizing that you have accomplished things and if you're looking for it that next hit it's never going to come you have to appreciate sometimes the accomplishments you can still say you know strive for things but appreciating what you have accomplished i think is important well there's two things in there there's uh appreciating or what i often because i work on this a ton with clients you know high achievers um, perfectionists who self-proclaimed perfectionists, uh, rightfully so, who you talk about valuing and owning the things that you have and that that's okay, you know, and you don't have to be demonstrative about it, you know, to others, but that internally, that's very important um, to recognize those things and to use that for confidence and to build upon that. Um, not everybody's very good at that. And so um, there, there's a, a need for that. And actually, very interestingly, uh, so I'm the coach that's a nerd and has a an articles to read folder on my computer. So one of the articles I just downloaded, I saw Adam Grant uh, posted a tweet about um, that's looking at hiding success and that some of the social psych research is showing that there is negative implications actually with your relationship with others when you take that too far, when you don't actually talk about your successes and own your successes, that that actually hurts um, the relationship um, and is not perceived well all the time, you know? So, uh, you know, one of the things Elise mentioned kind of at the beginning was this notion of like the sweet spot that she felt with, you know, finding, you know, her career. But I think that that's true for a lot of things. Everything's on a bell curve, right? Too little of something or none of it, not good. Too much of it, not good either. And then I think the, sec you know, the second point is a huge focus, not just right now in 2020, certainly at this point of 2020, it's a big focus. Um, with this kind of ultra marathon we're on, but it had already been a big focus was, you know, this, this societal notion that we've had that 
more is better, that overworking is worthy of praise and you want to tell people and, you know, the champions are the one who's, who are out there all the time, no matter what. Um, we certainly had, you know, Dave Buckles on talking about his research on uh, the importance of psychological rest and recovery and there's tons of discussion out there about self-care and that's just essential, you know, finding those those moments is, is really important and those ways to reset and recharge is essential for high performance. So the devil's advocate in my head can envision the practice fiends rubbing their hands together thinking, all right, there'll be fewer people. What's the counter argument to that? The answer is what I'm, I always give my clients and my students. It depends. <laughs> but you, you brought up a, a good point here that maybe we can uh, mention that we are thinking about this. I know, you know, depending on when this gets, when Elise's episode gets aired, this might be around that time. But we are thinking, right, about having a little panel discussion on goals, which actually might maybe get aired before this episode. So certainly people might want to clue into that discussion because they think that was a really big piece of, you know, her episode too, right? She's obviously very driven, you know, um, she talked about, you know, the type of kind of goal style that she has and that's a, an important focus for, or thing for people to think about as well. There are actually different goal styles. There are different ways to approach goals because we have different personalities and different experiences. Um, goal theories underlying goals are a lot more complex than we give them credit for. That would be amazing. So we should also be on YouTube by now. <laughs> as, not as we record, but by the time this airs. So uh, check us out there and um, like us on social media. Um, <laughs> thanks for listening to us as always. And like us on social media. Check us out on Instagram check out the website and we appreciate it. Thanks for listening. The Path Distilled is hosted by Kevin Harris and Lauren Tashman, created and produced by Kevin Harris. The content is copyrighted by The Path Distilled, all rights reserved.